I think it makes a lot of sense, especially as we're moving into this conversational way of approaching marketing. We don't have a generic buyer persona anymore. There's this level of personalization is just so big now that you need to understand the industry of the person that you're talking to, the job role of the person that you're talking to. And realistically, when you're speaking to someone, let's take banking and finance, for example, you're speaking to someone in banking and finance, uh, they come to you and they don't say, hey, what email use cases have you got? They say, hey, this is my problem. And it's for us as an organization to work out what that solution is for them. And now we're a complex organization. We've got around 30 products. If I was to go back to this banking person who has a problem and say, right, what you need is conversations, answers, moments, people, RCS, SMS, a bit of two-factor authentication, some IoT and a bit of this, they're going to look at me and their head's going to spin. If I go back as an industry expert and say, well, for banking and finance, we've got this user journey. You can take this user journey. You don't need to know what the component parts are that sit in the background. You just need to know that we've got 100 banking customers who are using our solution. We'll give you one price for the journey rather than the product. You don't need to know what makes it. We're just trying to make it as simple for you. So whereas product traditionally has tried to push product to anyone, of course, we want to push our products to everyone. We're just doing it in a, in a slightly different way. Rather than being product-led, we're now industry-led. Welcome to the Product Marketing Life podcast, brought to you by the Product Marketing Alliance and hosted by me, Mark Cassini, Product Marketing Manager at Jobber. Every two weeks, I pull insights from some of the world's most talented product marketers to uncover the secret sauce of successful product marketing. In this episode, I'm joined by Joshua Diner, Group Product Marketing Manager at Infobit. Having worked in both product and marketing for more than 10 years across communications, ratings and reviews, legal publishing, and coffee, Joshua has built a wealth of useful information and remains passionate about product to this day. In his spare time, he enjoys a good cycling session and paying a small fortune to watch Tottenham lose on weekends. Today, Joshua and the team at InfoBip help their clients and partners overcome the complexity of consumer communications, grow their business, and enhance the customer experience all in a fast, secure, and reliable way via their omnichannel engagement solutions. During our chat, Joshua explores the critical role of personalization and an industry-specific approach when positioning and selling solutions to customers. Through the lens of conversational communication, he shares how his efforts have shifted from a product-led growth focus to an industry-led growth focus. All right, with that out of the way, let's dive in. Hey, Josh, how's it going? Uh, there's actually only one authorized answer in the UK for how's it going. Not too bad. We're we're very non-committal people. If I was to ever ask a friend how they were going and they said bad or good, I would not know what to do. So I'm not too bad. Thank you very much. How are you? Great, thanks. I'll take I'll take not too bad any day of the week. So uh, that's good to hear. Super excited to have you on the show today. I've got a lot of questions to ask you, but before I get into those, I think it's always good to have the guests you know walk me through your career so far and what you do at InfoBit. Well, funnily enough, I've had a, a career that has one sort of one thing in mind which is the product marketing running throughout it in terms of industry it's been pretty agnostic i mean being british i had one option growing up so i worked for six years in a fish and chip shop uh there was nothing else to do but in terms of my post university career i spent some time working for lexus nexus a global legal publishing house in their product team so i was sort of a, a product manager slash digital development person looking at how we could 
transform the company digitally and take what was traditionally a print business online to a, a new younger audience after working there for four years and funnily enough meeting my uh, wife there she is still there now serving at her 10th year I think um, I was pinched by a company called Revu which are a ratings and review company uh, I guess for a, an American audience they're basically like a trust pilot or, or even a Yelp they deliver reviews and they gather user-generated content. They approached me and said, we've got this position available as a product marketing manager. And I said, I don't understand what product does or what marketing does. So why are you offering this to me? And they said, we want a new perspective. Someone with a background like you was to come in and, and shake things up a bit. So I, I joined there. I spent two years working in ratings and reviews and really honing my skills in product marketing. Um, I, after about two years, got approached by an AI startup in the retail e-com business saying, do you want a head of marketing position? And I said, yeah, I would love a head of marketing position. I'm definitely not qualified for this, but if I lie to you just about long enough, you might give it to me. So they offered that to me. I handed in my notice, went off on holiday, and two weeks later got a notification that the company had collapsed and uh, the position was definitely no longer there. So I scrambled around for a bit for a few weeks trying to find a new job and ended up with completely different industry, uh, coffee. So they brought me on board as a B2B marketing manager for a coffee company. Traditionally, they're known for like their home delivery service, but they wanted to launch a B2B brand selling coffee directly into offices. It was a gap in the market they thought could be exploited with quality coffee. And I came on and helped them launch a brand, launch a website, build up a sales team, build out a marketing function and actually bring digital leads in, get an event schedule for them and, and all of that. So I was there for a year making that happen. Luckily, I left before COVID because it turns out that offices do not need coffee in COVID times. And I'm pretty sure that business, while it is still going and still going quite strong, lost a lot of revenue during COVID. I, again, got headhunted into this time the communication business where I find myself now. I, I joined Gamma, which is a British-based uh, comms business. Really, what they specialize in is telephony and replacing traditional telephony with online telephony and helping businesses go digital. I was brought in as the first product marketing hire in a team of 1,200 people to work closely with the product team um, and really streamline go-to-market and help push products into new industries. So I spent, again, two years working there. You're seeing a theme. I Every two years seem to get headhunted. And uh, I'm not going to argue. It's, it's not a bad way to do things. After two years, I got headhunted by Infobib, a global comms business. So whereas uh, Gamma were focused predominantly on telephony in Britain, Infobib is more of an SMS business globally. It's a it's a company that most people haven't heard of. It's actually a Croatian unicorn. It's it's one of the biggest companies in Croatia. I think the biggest tech startup in Croatian history. We work in 190 plus countries, including North America. We've got offices in 70 locations, and we're one of those background organizations that no one's heard of, but everyone uses. So. We uh, touch 70% of global smartphones each year. To, to put it in perspective, I'm sure you've had a text message from your bank with a passcode saying, use this to log in. Chances are that's come through our platform. 
if you're speaking to Uber and the numbers anonymized for security, that's because it's come through our platform. You don't need to know that Uber have got this third party facilitating all of those messages, but that's what we do on a global scale. I came in as a senior product marketing manager to look after their uh, contact center business. And I was lucky enough to be promoted into a team lead position sort of the turn of the year. So now I look after a team of industry marketing managers. We take a fairly product agnostic view to taking things to market. So whereas product marketing own a product, all about product, my team own an industry that is their product. So they combine all of the different products we've got into solutions that match industry pain points and then go to market with those solutions rather than like a new feature to adopt. I said it was a fairly comprehensive and quick shoot through the things that I have done. I've done other stuff as well. I've done some terrible jobs, just bit parts here and there. Well, maybe we'll have to have you back on for a follow-up episode to dig into some of those (laughs) less than than exciting experiences, but a lot to unpack there. As you said, very diverse industries, but that common through line of product marketing. And I've got some follow-up questions about that through line itself. Have you found that because the industries that you've worked in have been quite diverse, albeit the past two being in the communication space, that product marketing differs quite dramatically depending on the industry that you find yourself in? Or have there been some pretty consistent themes or at least expectations, responsibilities, the day-to-day pretty much the same, or has it been quite diverse? There's been some very consistent themes. A consistent theme being that product always delivers something too late. Sales always want something yesterday, and we're always the ones in the middle running around trying to get stuff done. Um, But really, there's a lot of similarities in terms of what's expected from us. We are the go-to-market people. We are responsible for enabling sales. We're responsible for competitive. We're responsible for product launches. There's also a huge amount of difference to the degree that I have reported into both the marketing function and the product function, depending on what business I've been in. There's always different gray areas between what is the responsibility of a product manager and what is the responsibility of a product marketing manager and what that line is. And I've seen it change dramatically in in different industries in different places so sometimes we're responsible for pricing in product marketing sometimes pricing is entirely on on product um likewise when it comes to market conditions sometimes that falls with product sometimes that's fooled with product marketing but what is key and what is the thing that i see time and time again is if product and product marketing are able to work closer together it is to the benefit of both sides we take a lot of work out of their play and i think the best i've heard described it by one of our friends at the product marketing alliance is product marketing are the voice of product to the marketplace and the voice of the marketplace to product so the the way that i see it and the way that i've always described it is I am a middleman. I'm effectively a project manager. My role sits between the product team, the marketing team, the sales team, uh, the account management team, and the marketplace itself. And I'm responsible for facilitating a two-way exchange of information. I take what is technical from product, break it down into layman's terms, and distribute it through the organization. To sales, it's enablement and understanding of how the product works, how it addresses customer pain points and how it benefits them. To marketing, it's about who our buyer persona is, how we need to message and position ourselves 
into different industries and what kind of campaign work we can kick up. Well, on the flip side, it's listening to the marketplace, understanding how our products and services are resonating with our end users, uh, what our competitors are doing and how they're developing similar products and how they compare to ours and putting that back up to the products so we can continue to iterate and improve. And have you found the dynamics of being that middleman is different when you're organized around an industry like you are at InfoBip versus around a specific product space or solution space like you find in, I would say, probably most traditional product-oriented orgs? Because this is the first conversation I think I've had with a person in product marketing who's been organized in that way. It's not something that yes. you often see. Yeah, this is a brand new position within the, within the organization. It, it was made for me specifically. So... I think it makes a lot of sense, especially as we're moving into this conversational way of approaching marketing. We don't have a generic buyer persona anymore. There's this level of personalization is just so big now that you need to understand the industry of the person that you're talking to, the job role of the person that you're talking to. And realistically, when you're speaking to someone, let's take banking and finance, for example, you're speaking to someone in banking and finance, uh, they come to you and they don't say, hey, what email use cases have you got? They say, hey, this is my problem. And it's for us as an organization to work out what that solution is for them. And now we're a complex organization. We've got around 30 products. If I was to go back to this banking person who has a problem and say, right, what you need is conversations, answers, moments, people, RCS, SMS, a bit of two-factor authentication, some IoT and a bit of this, they're going to look at me and their head's going to spin. If I go back as an industry expert and say, well, for banking and finance, we've got this user journey. You can take this user journey. You don't need to know what the component parts are that sit in the background. You just need to know that we've got 100 banking customers who are using our solution. We'll give you one price for the journey rather than the product. You don't need to know what makes it. We're just trying to make it as simple for you. So whereas product traditionally has tried to push product to anyone, of course, we want to push our products to everyone. We're just doing it in a, in a slightly different way. Rather than being product-led, we're now industry-led. We see the top five pain points in BFSI, for example, map them to our top use cases for those pain points, and then build a campaign around that. It might be appointment booking. For example, You want to, people want to book appointments to go and see their bank manager. They don't need to know that it takes seven products to build that. They need the contact center piece, the chatbot piece, the engagement platform piece, and the four channels that best work for them. Why can't I just sell them the use case, appointment booking for banking and finance and say, yeah, we've got 10 people using this. It's reduced costs by 50%. It's done this. Here's one price for appointment booking. Yeah. And what I like about that approach is it really forces your customer to think through the lens of their own customers. This idea of mapping out their customer journey and saying, (laughs) hey, these are all the different ways in which your customers will engage with you. And these are the way that we can make those interactions better for both parties is so different than just, I think, you know, what is commonplace today is, you know, customer comes to me, they've got, you know, this very big problem. And as you said, like, how can I push as many different products to solve those problems as possible to, you know, increase adoption, conversion, sell a bigger package. Whereas the approach that you've just explained, 
really puts it through the lens of their customers' customers and, and kind of builds it's up. It's very customer-centric. Effectively, we're moving away from a product-based sell to a solution-based sell, which for me makes a lot more sense. Sometimes with a product sell, you're trying to fit a round peg in a square hole and it just doesn't go. If you're a little bit more agile in your approach, and don't go into the specifics. You can't go back on the specifics. If you've told them the prices for seven products, they're going to go, oh, hang on a minute. We've we got to get rid of this. If you give them the price for a value-based service that you're adding, you can change the products in the background to fit the use case a little bit better. Right, yeah, that's a really smart approach. Well, before we get too much farther into this idea of conversational you know, communication and experiences, I want to just briefly touch on one of your career experiences so far, and that was at that you know coffee uh, seller that was making that shift into going from the consumer space to the B two B space. So I'm curious, you know, I don't often get to talk to product marketers who have experience in the CPG space, even if it's you know tangentially. So mm -hmm. I'm curious what experiences and learnings you had from you know working in that space that you've been able to apply to your day to day um, more generally as a product marketer. It gave me appreciation for three things, I think, more than anything else. Um, one is around eventing. I, I'd always seen eventing as this thing that people do to shake hands and get free pens. And don't get me wrong, I love a free pen as, next, as much as the next product marketing manager. But being able to go along to events where people wouldn't generally expect to see a coffee company. So we were doing eventing at like... Um, procurement places or for office managers where there's lots of like fire technology and this and that never coffee companies trying to sell in but there are buyer persona and being able to spend time actually meeting people gave me a newfound respect for the event space and the kind of value that it can do because there was no um, real event strategy when I when I took over there secondly um, personalization personalization and account-based marketing I'd never used account-based marketing before, but when it comes to outbound marketing for a tangible good, you can send free samples to your buyer persona. When you're selling ratings and reviews, when you're selling um, communication, you can't do that. You can say have 10 free SMSs, but it's not something they can hold in their hand. But when, when I understand who the buyer persona is and I've got everything that I need from them, I can send them coffee machine like a little v60 pourer with filters i can send them coffee ground to whatever they want i can send them a mug that's personalized with their name on it and it doesn't cost a lot to send out each one of those packages but the power of that account-based marketing and personalization resonates so much more than sending a million emails and hoping to get a response from them so not something i'd done before and the other thing that it gave me uh, respect for is digital marketing. I'd actually never been involved in the pointy end of digital marketing before. So there was a digital marketing person when I worked at Revu in ratings and reviews. I would come up with some ideas and, and they would spit them out, but I never knew what was going on in the spitting out. But in owning the digital marketing piece completely with an agency, I, I got to sit in every day and see what was actually going into building that and the level of complexity and how you can build like for like audiences and segment and target the power that gave me I took into to every business that I've done since then so I would say that whereas it wasn't a core 
product marketing role. Product marketing was an element of it, but this was more all-encompassing. It gave me the digital marketing piece, the event piece, the account-based marketing piece, the branding piece, the web piece, the design piece, all bits that I'd never done before, but now I use in my day-to-day -day product marketing because I understand how they work. I can be more involved when something like that is happening. I know the right questions to ask, and I know the kind of results and the KPIs that I want to see coming from that. Yeah, and I think you touched on some things that definitely make us software-based product marketers quite jealous of our product marketing you know, partners who get to work in the physical good space. Um, you know, There is nothing that beats holding something physically in your hand, as you said, compared to having to interact with something through a keyboard and a mouse, right? There's that little bit of disconnect that you don't have that, I don't know, that value or that human element to it that, uh, that you, that you get with a physical good. Um, and you're right, you know, in my experience working with physical goods companies, albeit through uh, an agency, just miles ahead in, in terms of that element of, again, personalization and digital marketing. Uh, I learned way more in a year at an agency about digital marketing than I ever have in my, you know, six, seven plus years in product marketing in the software space. So I couldn't agree with you more on those two points. Also, it's the best smelling office I've ever worked in. Fresh I can coffee only imagine. Brown. Oh my God. It was an absolute dream. Oh, I don't know. Did you did you happen to get addicted to it at some point? Because I feel like I would it would be very hard I didn't for me not sleep to just have for a year. Coffee. I can imagine. <laughs> I really cut back now. I have one cup of coffee a day in the morning. That is it. Because that year we had every fancy machine you could ever imagine sitting around the office you could have filter coffee espresso coffee aeropresses v60 uh it was a, it was a good learning experience from coffee I, I went from drinking instant not caring about it to a coffee snob and then back again i think that's too funny well you know on this topic of personalization i think it provides a great segue into the primary topic of our conversation today and that's this idea of conversational communication before we get too far into it can you explain for someone who's never heard of that concept what it is? So conversational communication is quite simple at a high level. All it is is blending chatbots, AI, and human interactions to build conversational journeys that feel human-like. So there's been so many developments with AI over the past year. Chatbots are getting better and better. Everyone's had a frustrating experience with a chatbot on a website where they've said, my name's Josh, can you help me with this? And it's gone, I don't understand the question, 15 times before giving you a menu of three options, none of which actually apply to you. And you just type human into the thing over and over again until either the keyboard breaks or a human takes over. But with the way that chatbots are learning now it's possible to have like a full conversation with a chatbot that understands your intent and has the data built into the back end to let you have a human-like experience end-to-end -end. and it's almost simpler to do that than to wait for a human than to pick up a phone and hold for 15 minutes because the information is there at the end of the day all we want when we're interacting with the brands we like with our bank with whoever is a simple experience we go on that website to achieve something we phone up that call center to achieve something it might be booking an appointment it might be um, finding out our balance it might be finding out where a product is if i can rather than pick up that phone or, or get involved in that contact center just drop a note into a little window that can answer the question like that then why wouldn't i do it 
Yeah, I appreciate the very concise uh, answer there because I think you know from the outside looking in, I reviewed some of the materials that you shared with me prior to our conversation today, and I did get the sense that wow, this seems like a very dense topic, and I'm sure it can be. You know, you talked about InfoBip offering upwards of 30 different products, um, mm -hmm. and that can feel overwhelming. But I think the way that you explained it makes a ton of sense. And you've already touched on some use cases that I know I'm personally familiar with. I'm sure some of the um, listeners are as well. But I want to focus more specifically on conversational marketing. What are some of the ways in which the this idea of conversational communication applies in a marketing context? And what types of metrics would it help you know, a product marketer or a broader marketing team achieve if they're considering a conversational communication-like solution? Okay, so first off, let me, again, give a broad overview of what my definition of conversational marketing is. So conversational marketing is where you use a combination of marketing and promotional campaigns to sort of move beyond just pure broadcasting. You get to interact with customers on their favorite channels to inform, educate, and re-engage based on previous interactions. So the key thing there for me being based on previous interactions. Conversational marketing is all about understanding who your consumer base is, understanding how they have previously interacted with you and giving a level of personalization to it. So when it comes to measuring metrics, it, it's the same that you would use for, for any kind of traditional marketing. You're looking at your spend, how much it's looking to come in and, and depending on what specific campaign you're running, if it's cart abandonment, you're looking at the percentage of people coming back into the cart abandonment flow. If you're replacing a traditional email marketing campaign, maybe you're looking at the cost versus pushing out a different campaign. You're looking at which channels work best with your consumers because it's you're able to have a conversational ex experience through any number of channels. If you think about the communication market over the last 20 years. 20 years ago, you went into a shop, into your bank, and you had a personalized conversation with that bank agent, with that consumer. You had to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So they know who you are, they know you by name, they know what you want, they can help you in that manner. You push forward sort of six or seven years to the, the rise of e-commerce. All of a sudden, you've got this faceless website. You're very lucky to get in touch with them on the phone, email, or SMS once in a blue moon. It, it's not going to happen. So you've completely lost that level of personalization within 10 years. You move forward again to really mm, a few years ago up until now, you're talking about the age of omni-channel. So we've got all of these digital channels that have sprung up globally, like uh, Messenger, WhatsApp, RCS, Viber, Line, Talk. Each of these serves a different section of the world, a different demographic. And these are the channels that people are using more and more. I mean, I probably only send SMSs to my mum now. When I'm talking to my friends, I'm using WhatsApp. And businesses have had to catch up with that. So now they've got this omni-channel approach where they're able to get in touch with you on your phone, on the channels that you actually use. So you're not waiting for an email to come through anymore. They're able to push promotional campaigns to you. Now we think about conversational on top of that. All of a sudden, you've collected all of this information on what they've bought before, how they've interacted with your website. You've got this conversational chatbot capability, which is able to have a human-like conversation with you, but it's also smart enough to understand what you've bought and what might also work for you. It can upsell and cross-sell to you on your favorite platform. And you've got things like uh, payments coming into uh, Messenger. You've got payment coming into WhatsApp. So someone can actually 
take Facebook as an example, they can be browsing around on, on Facebook, see an advert for a pair of shoes. On that advert, they can click to WhatsApp or click to Messenger. It'll open a window. They can have a conversation with the chatbot. If the chatbot doesn't understand the conversation, it can pass off to an agent and they can purchase all on that channel while the data is being collected and stored in a customer data platform so the company knows when to get in touch with you again. Effectively, what we've done is looped all the way back around to the 2000s, but on a device. So we're giving you the personal in-store experience on the device. It's, it's much easier for people. And that, for me, is what makes conversational marketing so powerful. It's the personalization piece. It's the understanding piece. It's the fact that it's all delivered to you in the place that you want it. It can all be tracked through various different methods. I mean, a lot of this could be integrated into your CRM, for example. You could probably run this whole campaign from your own Salesforce or HubSpot account if it was set up in the right way. And it's actually easier at the end of the day because you're taking away um, contact center agents and making it cheaper by one, giving them digital channels. A contact center agent on the phone can have one conversation with one person. A contact center agent who is texting can speak to eight, 10 people at the same time, give or take. Um, it's making it easier for businesses. They don't have to spend so much on expensive phone calls, on expensive agents. It's making it easier for people they're able to get in touch with their business through a variety of methods on the channels that they actually want. And because we understand what they're purchasing, we're able to put stuff in front of them that actually work. It just provides you a much better ROI at the end of the day. Yeah, and I, I think that a whole idea of the scalability element that you just touched on a second ago is, is really important as well. I think uh, especially because there's this explosion of different channels and ways for consumers or potential buyers to interact with customers, becomes very challenging to, with people, scale to address all those different interactions, right? Um, so a, a solution that allows you to do that type of conversational marketing, conversational support, conversational commerce, allows you to be in all those places without needing to, you know, as, as the product ramps and as your offering expands, you don't need to ramp up in terms of the human capital at the same rate because it's very expensive, as you said, right? So yeah. I think that, that's a huge benefit. Awesome. So, you know, I think right now, especially there's a lot of conversation around generative AI, automation, chatbots. And I think the second you hear some of those terms, you think they couldn't be any farther from personalization. And you already talked about a lot of the ways uh, how that's not the case, you know, by using those actual customer uh, data points that you're storing as a business by tracking past interactions, ads they viewed, uh, different conversations they've had with your business. So, I want to focus on maybe some of the additional challenges that might come up in providing that mm -hmm. level of personalization, um, especially under the context of kind of where we are today with privacy. You know, Apple's really big on obfuscating personal information online. Uh, more and more businesses are kind of going down that path with Apple, kind of think seen as the leader. So how can, you know, conversational communication and marketing evolve to meet those challenges? That is, that is a good question. I think, there's, I mean, a lot of risks and rewards that come with generative AI. A lot of people think that it's a terrible thing. It's going to take everyone's jobs. I don't personally see it as the death of menial jobs. I see it as the death of poor customer services. In terms of what it can deliver, it can do what a human can do in, in nanoseconds to a much larger audience. Like I said, you can have one agent speaking with one person on the phone, 
one agent speaking with eight people using SMS. You can have one chatbot speaking with infinite people about the same thing at the same time. So there's a, a huge risk and reward piece that comes with that. In terms of data privacy, a chatbot is only as smart as the information that you feed into it. If it doesn't have the data privacy in the first place, there's no way that the data privacy can be leaked. And for the most part, when you're looking at generative AI on a website as a chatbot, as being used to build a poem, when you're sat in front of your computer writing prompts into ChatGPT, it's not collecting any personal data at all. So it's for businesses individually to really build that disconnect between what it knows about people and, and what it doesn't know about people. So there's no reason for the chatbot to know your phone number. There's no reason for it to know where you live. It, that doesn't really help it unless, of course, you're in real estate and it does want to promote things to you like that, but then you'd have to build in different fail-safes. Um, what, what it does need to know is your shopping habits. So I think data split into, and I'm not a data privacy expert, data split into like data which can be used to identify you, like height, weight, age, name, and then data which isn't able to identify you, like what shopping habits you've got, uh, what you bought, where you shop. There's no way to identify you from that personal data. So it's for businesses to decide how much they want that to be known. But you're never going to be in a position where one person can come to a chatbot and ask for the data of other people and for it to be shared. It just is built into the fail saves of ChatGPT, so OpenAI, into Bard at Google, and, and everything that's being built is being built with that in mind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I'm sure, like you said, it's really up to the business applying the tools to think about how they separate that, you know, personally identifiable information from the data points that aren't tied to that mm -hmm. personally identifiable information. And I'm sure, you know, as experts in this space, you know, you've got the, you know, expertise and, and recommendations to help businesses navigate that distinction. So I, I would imagine, you know, it's there's a cause for concern. Um, we, I, I did a event a few weeks ago with Microsoft on, on the topic of AI. And one of the questions that came up was about identifying personal data and Microsoft are so on it when it comes to that kind of thing. They just, one, they are not collecting data themselves. So Microsoft and OpenAI are not collecting the data. They're selling the sub the, the product in almost a sandpit environment. So you take a subset of it and then you have your data and next to it, you have their data and they don't really cross over. So they're not collecting any data. If there's anyone responsible, it's the business who is implementing the AI, like you said. Absolutely. So I wanna throw a hypothetical at you. Let's mm -hmm. say, you know, you're a product marketer at a startup that's starting to skip and they're starting to see this kind of explosion of their customer growth um, and this expansion of their solutions at such a rate that they can't possibly keep up from a support or from a marketing perspective to provide that level of personalization that their customers have come to expect from them as they were, you know, a smaller business. So as a product marketer, how would I go about identifying the right customer touch points to potentially insert and leverage conversational communication? That's a good question. I mean, there's so many different touch points during the journey. Literally every single one of them at some stage could have an application for a conversational piece on there. So broadly speaking, what I would do is break it down into awareness and consideration, um, purchase, 
and then care retention and loyalty as the three main buckets that you're looking at. So for awareness, it's all about having the personalized promotions coming at you. It's about seeing personalized content on your feed based on your buying habits. So let's say I bought a bicycle, for example, um, I'm I'm someone who's more likely to buy cycling shoes. So advertise cycling shoes at me. Uh, provide me information with cycling shoes. Provide a link to your cycling shoe website and a chatbot that can answer any of my questions about cycling shoes. If I've got any questions that can't be answered, then great. It's an opportunity to hand off to an agent. Um, but you can send promotions just to me. If If I put a pair of shoes in my basket, for example, and they're, I don't know, $300 for argument's sake, and I've left them there for a day, build a flow into your customer engagement hub to message me and say, hey, we notice you've not bought this yet. How about a 10% discount? And then once I've bought it, don't stop there. There's so many more opportunities to get in touch with me and find out how I'm getting on with the product. Will I leave a review of the product? Because then more like-minded people like me are going to see that. If I want to know shipping details about that product, I can message with a chatbot and it can say, what's your tracking number? I can give it that and say, yeah, it will be there in two days. It's coming with this delivery person. Then you look at care and retention, sort of aftercare. It could be that they're sending you messages a month later to see how you're getting on, giving you tips on cleat positions and the, the best way to put these shoes on. It could be that you get entered into a loyalty scheme if you if you want to, because you can collect points to get other cycling-based stuff from whatever this sports store is. And then it loops all the way back around to the promotional stuff. Now they know that I've got the bike. They know that I've got the shoes. Maybe I need a bike computer. Put the adverts of bike computers in front of me. Put the chatbot about bike computers there. Give me the information I want about that. And it is this never-ending infinite loop of awareness and consideration, purchase, care, retention, and loyalty. It really fits into every stage of the journey. I mean, you can break it down even even lower than that. There's hundreds of different use cases where you could use conversational. There's nowhere that a chatbot can't help in that journey, really. Right. Yeah, and I, and I like that way of framing it through the funnel and identifying, you know, as a product marketer, what are the metrics perhaps in this hypothetical situation that seem to be struggling? Are we really starting to fall behind in our awareness on our conversion on our retention and loyalty and then prioritizing along those metrics would probably be a good place to start because um, as you said there's hundreds of different touch points i think it might be overwhelming to try and tackle all of them at once um yeah. so you know starting with the ones along those kind of three buckets as you said that are going to have the most impact to address where those metrics are struggling i think probably makes the most sense for, for me the easiest one to set up this is i mean we're leaning more into retail e-commerce here than anything else is cart abandonment. That is money that could be in your pocket at the end of the day. And it's very simple to set up a rule or a chatbot just to pop up and say, hey, you left something in your cart. Why don't you go here and check out? Pick up where you left off. Even if you get like 1% conversion on that, that's money that you were going to lose beforehand. After that, like an about you uh, chatbot, really, really easy to build and set up. I wish I could show you what we've built over at Infobib. We've got this amazing a self-building chatbot that we're just batering at the moment so i can build a chatbot for any website in about one minute all i do is go to this chatbot it says hey what's your name and i say josh it says um so what's your website josh and 
for argument's sake, let's say I put in um, the website of the Memphis Grizzlies and it goes, okay, cool. I've scanned your website. I know that your tone of voice is playful. I know that your tone of voice is informative. Hi, I'm the Memphis Grizzlies. Ask me any question. And then boom, I have a chatbot about the Memphis Grizzlies. I can ask when's the next game and it will from scraping the site know who it is who's the head coach it knows that information where can i buy tickets it knows that information and we've tested this i i am a tottenham hotspur supporter football club in england i've tested it with that we've tested it on herbalife even asked it on herbalife to build us a diet plan for a week based on herbalife products and it's able to do that all using the power of generative ai something that a year ago just would not have been capable of doing at all now i can build a chatbot inside of one minute for any website it's it's crazy how quickly technology is advancing yeah that's super impressive uh, and firstly you know my condolences on being a tottenham fan for the last I couple know, of years it's been an absolute place. nightmare <laughs> Um, but, but what I also wanted to highlight, just, you know, this idea of cart abandonment, it, it, it's very much apparent, even on the software side of things, you know, we talk about customers going to your pricing page and not making a selection, maybe, uh, you know, creating an account, but falling out of the flow, uh, starting a trial, but not ultimately converting like those to, those are all different types of cart abandonment scenarios where it sounds like a chatbot could be very helpful in Extremely. helping customers cross the line and ultimately convert. Absolutely. It it does span multiple different industries, multiple verticals. It's just a different way of looking. It could be form filling rather than cart abandonment. You start applying for a credit card, you don't finish it. Hey, why don't you come back into this flow right now? Absolutely. So I'm curious then, we talked this idea of, of scalability. How challenging or, or maybe simple would it be to scale some of those different conversational experiences to different customer types, verticals, or maybe even different you know, geographic regions if you're working at such a scale? So geographic regions is, is, is very easy. Uh, a lot of the artificial intelligence coming in now is able to quite simply translate from English into any language so you can effectively have the same chatbot running in any place. Industries is, is quite an interesting one because when we're talking about conversational commerce, conversational marketing, really, there are use cases that can be used in, in every industry and personalization is important, but it does lean more into retail and e-commerce. And I'll try and I'll try and explain why they have to be so hot on it. If I'm taking the UK as an example and telco, there's like four mobile network operators in the UK. There might be some MVNOs sitting under them, but essentially four people have a monopoly on the entire market. So they've got 15 million customers each. It does not matter to them one iota if I leave to go to another company. They've lost such a small amount of money that it doesn't matter, which is why you see tech, uh, normally they're behind with this kind of technology. Likewise, in banking and finance, there's lots of use cases, cut abandonment, and you're seeing these um, nouveau banks coming in and adopting these new technologies. So these fintechs are coming in, they're taking a big market share by being very, very personal and understanding their customers a bit more. But the big banks aren't scared. Again, in the UK, there's probably 15 financial institutions that hold all of the money. If I go from one to the other, <laughs> my salary is not hurting them too much. Don't you worry about that. Now you look at retail and e-commerce. I want to buy a pair of Nike shoes. There's 10,000 places in the UK I can buy a pair of Nike shoes. So why am I going to shop with you? 
it's much, 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 much more competitive, which is why they need to adopt the new technology first, why they need to have the best level of personalization, why they need to be able to get in touch with me on my favorite channels, why they need to understand my buying journey and when I'm likely to buy and to get in place with me then, because they need my money more than the 9,999 other shops that are offering the very same thing. So yes, it is very easy to scale these use cases and scale these products into different marketplaces. They just tend to make more sense in retail e-commerce because that is business that, that works at scale. Yeah, that, like you said, makes a ton of sense. And, and I, just to highlight something that you said that I think would be very impactful for anybody exploring a conversational communication solution or trying to get buy-in for one, almost framing it as this personalization has a competitive advantage. Your whole point on, you know, you could buy Nike shoes from any number of retailers across the UK, but what's ultimately going to get the buyer to select your store or again, in the, the software space, there could be 15, 20 different players in the space. If they're going to choose you, an element of that choice could be because how personalized the experience is all the way through the funnel, even to after conversion and, you know, retention. Completely. And it's, it's all about customer services. Um, when we talk about ourselves versus competitors, in essence, all of us are doing the same thing. We're all providing a communication service. So we lean into the fact that we've got excellent customer services and local professional services that we operate in so many countries, in so many languages, we can help you wherever. It's not part of our product stack. It's not a tangible thing that we can sell, but it is a differentiator to us because we're able to support people better. It's the same when it comes to other businesses in other industries. Ultimately, loyalty is only as good as the product and service being supplied. Absolutely. Well, listen, Josh, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Like you said, you know, InfoBiff is one of those companies that is huge in scale, but is in the background such that your average person wouldn't even know that they're engaging with them. And I always find talking to representatives from those businesses so fascinating because of how big and broad their reach is without them being, you know, in the front of all the tech websites or on the newspaper and all that stuff. So, so I appreciate you, uh, you know, uncovering this concept of uh, conversational communication and the personalization aspect of it. Uh, Cause I think there's a lot of value in product marketers to really think through that personalization lens. Before I let you go though, I want to ask you my final question. And then again, it's mm -hmm. one that I ask all my guests and that's what's an area of focus within the realm of product marketing that you think product marketers will have to pay extra attention to this year, more so than in previous years. Personalization, I, I lean into it again and again. The fact that we've got these new capabilities, new technologies coming in, don't fight it, lean into it. The better you get to know your customer and the more almost account-based marketing you're able to do, the one-to-one the -one interaction that you can have with them, the more likely they are to buy from you. If they're just a faceless, nameless person to a competitor and you know who they are and what they like, you're gonna get that business. Awesome. I think that's some fantastic advice. Well, listen, Josh, like I said, it's been a great conversation. Uh, you know, if, if anybody's looking to reach out to you, maybe, you know, pick your brain on the broader concept of personalization or more specifically about conversational communication, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Uh, my OnlyFans account. <laughs> no, they, they can reach out to me on, on LinkedIn. I think I am the only Joshua Diner based in the UK up there. Um, I took it very literally when they asked for full name. So I think, yeah, uh, Joshua Diner, Group Product Marketing Manager, Infobib, drop me a message. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for your time today, Josh. It's been a pleasure. Cool. Thank you so much. It has. It's been great. For everyone still tuned in, 
Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please help us spread the word to other product marketers. Before we leave you to get on with your day, if you want to get involved, here are a few ways you can. If you're a product marketer and you want to come on the show and speak about your day, a specific topic, or your role in general, that's one option. If you want to flex your podcast hosting skills, being a guest host is another. And finally, if you or your company want to spot to an episode, there's a third. Thanks again and have a great morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are.